Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with pastor teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Daniel 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might Make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them. But they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and before him I told the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed, I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the bows thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let it a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree 
of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, forasmuch as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation. But thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. What I'd like to do is throw your ribbon in here and just give introduction to what's happening here in Daniel 4 over in John 6. If you just turn there, Jesus is in the middle of teaching and he gives instruction on a pretty difficult passage of Scripture. Jesus in John 6 is teaching on the discourse of the bread of life and a lot of people are having a hard time with it because Jesus says that he himself came down from heaven. And so there's a lot of murmuring going on. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, They don't believe. And John, of course, the gospel is that of the gospel of belief, trying to get people who are in unbelief to come to faith. And so when we jump in in John 6, 36, Jesus says, But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. Now, that is usually what people will say when they come to uh, talking about, I don't believe. I don't believe because I don't see it. And I have to be able to see it to believe it. And so Jesus is saying to these people who are in unbelief, I'm standing right here before you. You see me, yet you still don't believe. All the miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus did from walking on water to calming the waves to feeding just recently over 15,000 people with a little boy's lunch to do all the miracles that he did, making a blind man see, a deaf man to hear, all the tremendous signs and wonders that he had already done right before their eyes. Jesus is standing there flesh and blood and they still don't believe. And he's teaching them something by that. Because sight doesn't actually help you to believe. There's something far worse that's within human beings that causes us not to believe. Paul deals with that in the first couple chapters of Romans. But here as he says this, he explains why it is that they don't believe. Verse 37, he begins to explain, he says, Look, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. What Jesus is saying there is this is a plan. The Father has planned to give to the Son certain people, what we call the elect, people who he knows before the foundation of the world that will believe, that will come to decide to choose to follow Jesus Christ. He says, this is the plan. All that the Father will give to me will come to me, and when they do, I will in no wise cast them out. So verse 38, he says, I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will, or the plan, of him that sent me. And so what he is doing is is he's letting them know this, this plan that we're working on, that the Father's will is, is a very skillful invasion. There's two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. 
the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of man. And what's happening before their eyes right there is a very skillful invasion of the darkness. But it's a covert operation. So it's like what we would see our Navy SEALs drop down in the middle of darkness from their helicopter with their night vision goggles on. They rope down into behind the walls. They make their attempt. They make their rescue. They, they break in, blow through the wall, grab the people that they're rescuing, up through the ropes, and the copter is gone, and it's all in the middle of the night, and it's all covert. This is what's happening in the kingdom right now. This is what Jesus is explaining. This is not by just chance. You guys don't believe, and, and it's astounding that you don't after all the things that you've seen. But the reason that you don't is because this is a very secret operation between him and the Father. All that the Father gives to me will come. I will rescue them because this is the Father's will. And look at 39, he says, This is the Father's will which hath sent me that all which he hath given me I shall lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. The last day is, he's saying, the final kingdom. This is the purpose. We're heading towards a final kingdom. And this kingdom isn't going to be hocus pocus. It's not going to be clouds and smoke and mirrors, but there's actually going to be a resurrection so that when we come to this kingdom that is true, we have our literal bodies again. The resurrection must take place before the millennium because this is a real covenant-keeping God who is saying this is absolutely real. You will have a real body, so nothing will take place until the last day. Verse 40, this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him again up at the last day. Now notice in verse 41, it says the Jews murmured. So verse 41 through 43, they are absolutely clueless. He says these things, and the Jews murmured at him, and because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They totally missed everything that he was saying. You ever have a conversation with someone, and you know they're not paying attention? Because the response that they give you, you said at least 10 minutes ago, and they made, they have absolutely no idea that you know you were not listening. A lot of times it's with, you, with your kids when they're young. Did you hear what I said? No. They're blind. They're deaf. They have no idea what, they, what he even just said. 42. Isn't this Jesus that we know? I mean, isn't he the son of Joseph? Uh, isn't he born of Mary? How, how is it that he says he came down from heaven? Jesus does the same thing they do and completely ignores what they say. Verse 44, he says something interesting. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. You can't come. It's impossible to come. Except the Father draws you. Because we are all born in revolt. We're born in sin. The psalmist says, I was conceived in sin. And like cockroaches in the night, you turn the light on and they run. They're not going to head toward the light, but they run from the light. 
And so he says, you cannot come. No man can come except the Father which has sent me draw him. And if you, you look into the, the Greek there, the draw is almost a drag. He's saying you can't come unless the Father drags you. Now certain people have to be drug a whole lot more. Some people's heart is softer. Usually it's women who are more tender. Guys are, you know, we're built that way, so we're a little harder. And a lot of us have to be actually downright dragged to go. You see that in church. And then for a third time, he says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and again I will raise him up at the last day. We're about to see Jesus' teachings take place in Daniel. Look at the narrative back in Daniel when we're dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. It almost seems like deja vu when you read Daniel chapter 4 because I had a dream and on it goes. I need an interpretation. It seems like it's almost the same as previous accounts or chapters in Daniel. So, But this one in particular, what we're looking at is a very large portrait. These are scenes of a literal kingdom taking place. And then we're also seeing the sovereign workings of the spiritual kingdom of the Lord's hand, the invisible hand of God working in an invisible kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and also the literal kingdom, that of Nebuchadnezzar. We also see, graciously given to us, is a glimpse of angelic work and how this works within us. Because even today, angels are busy at work, whether they're good or bad angels, they're busy at work in the kingdom. And so we're seeing all these things come to pass for our learning. And so what happens is, is in Daniel chapter 4, it's, it's a little bit different of a portion compared to other pieces of Daniel, because this is a, an announcement. This is something that Nebuchadnezzar the king gave in writing. It's his testimony. It's a royal edict to go throughout all the land. And so what we're having is a little bit of a summary of something that had already passed in his life. He is an older man by now, and like normal older men, we start reminiscing about the old days and start thinking well back then this was the good old days and this happened and this happened and this happened and so what we're having is, is a chronicler has recorded what he has said and what he has announced that must go throughout all of his realm so it starts out in verse 1 chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar the king unto all people nations and languages that dwell in all the earth all of his realm will be receiving this announcement peace be multiplied unto you it's a public declaration. And this is what he says. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. Now, it's wrought. It's not shown. But in the Old English, the word wrought means like it's machined. He's saying these things weren't just shown to me, but they were almost machined toward me. They impacted my life. These things were wrought and worked toward me, like a blacksmith torches his steel to turn it. These signs and wonders were machined toward my life. How great are his signs! How mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. There's his introduction. Now we get to the body of it. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was on a normal day. 
I was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. The word flourishing there is a botanical word where he's saying, I was flourishing so well in my palace, it was like the lushest, greenest gardens that you have ever seen, that of the tropical rainforest. And we know, if you look through just normal history, that the hanging gardens of Babylon that he created were the, one of the seven wonders of the world. They were intricately ran with water and aqueducts and different shade and different flowers that were imported throughout the entire world, cascading vines and different things. It was a marvelous sight. It was absolutely wonderful. And I believe he's making reference to that. He's saying, I'm just in my palace just flourishing in the cool, believe it or not, air-conditioned palace that he created. It is amazing. But then, of course, though Nebuchadnezzar is an absolute hardened criminal, I mean, hardened to the core. He's been a man of war from his youth. When you think of him, you think of an inmate that is covered with tattoos who does nothing but lift weights all day and then beat the tar out of people for fun. That's Nebuchadnezzar, an absolute criminal. But the Most High God is able to make him afraid. He may be afraid of no one, but when he lays upon his bed at night and no one is around, it's only God in him, and he becomes afraid. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, and as custom, as we've read before already in Daniel several times, his custom was, well, let's call in the wise men. So he does, verse 6, I made a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they may make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. And of course, they come in, the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, all the people with letters after their name, and the soothsayers, all the devil worshippers that he thought were helpful, and he tells the dream to them. But they did not make known unto him the interpretation. It is interesting in verse 8 that Daniel comes last. He is not fellowshipping with the magicians and the astrologers. He's separated himself, but he's about the king's business. He's probably busy at the gate. He's probably busy governing the country. So he's not around with these other fools. So he comes last. Comes walking in. And it says, and again, remember, this is a, an edict, a letter that is circular all around all the nations and all around the world. And so he says... But at last, Daniel came in before me. But remember in the early days, they changed his name so that he would forget his God and forget his heritage. But I think by now, Nebuchadnezzar is older, Daniel is older. They have developed a relationship that is good because even though Nebuchadnezzar is who he is in such a criminal way, Daniel is helpful and is concerned for the man. They've developed a friendship. And so he calls him name. His name is Daniel. Oh, but by the way, just because of the royal edict, everybody else in the world knows him as his pseudoname, that of Belshazzar. So he has to tell them. Oh, Daniel came in. Oh, yeah, by the way, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and before him I told the dream. Tells him the dream, oh, Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen in the interpretation. Okay, so we skip over to verse 19, and we see it take place. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for one hour. 
His thoughts troubled him. The king spake, and he could see it on his face. He probably was white as a ghost. And Belshazzar, he says, Let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, now look at the response. The dream be to them that hate you, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. But Daniel, after he has seen the dream and knows the interpretation and is frightened terribly by the dream, astonished, actually, he says, this, this shouldn't happen to you. This should happen to your enemies, sir. Daniel is genuinely concerned for this guy. And there is where the fulcrum is. If we are not genuinely concerned for people, we are wasting our time. Spurgeon says, if people that we know have to fall to hell, let them fall with us grabbing our arms around their ankles as they go. And you can't make it a project, and you can't make it business, although it is the king's business. We have to genuinely care for people. Otherwise, they're going to know. And it'll also be as boring and as cumbersome as get out to the point where you quit. Because we can't fake it. And if you do, you can't fake it long. He says, Lord, my Lord, let this happen to somebody else. He knows this is going to get ugly. This is not good. This is, this is bad. This isn't going to turn out good. Verse 20, he starts to tell him, The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto heaven. Now, parentheses, those of us that have sat under the teaching of, Dan of Daniel and the prophecies, how many times have we heard this already? Several times. So as a student of the Bible, and as we are learners of the Bible, as we're disciples of this, we already should have in our mind, oh yeah, when you think of prophecy and prophetical teaching, and he talks about a tree, what is he really actually talking about? A kingdom. Because we've been here before. And so that's how you start to develop the mind of Christ that he wants us to have so that when we're coming through the scriptures, we don't always say as children, I don't understand it. We've come across this several times in prophetical teaching. Well, there was a tree and the tree was lopped off. And then he gives the interpretation thereof and it ends up being a kingdom. So we're already ahead of the game here. We are becoming like Daniel. We can interpret prophetical teaching. Now we take that for granted. Those of you say, yo, I understand that. You need to talk to people who don't go to Bible-believing churches. I just recently talked to a guy who listens on the radio. And he says, well, I listened to you on the radio. It came in on accident. And I go, okay. And, and he goes, well, you're, you're like way different than what I'm used to going to church. And I go, Okay, and he goes, and I, and I don't know if that's good or bad, and, and I assume it's bad, because, you know, he, he's like, well, you know, he goes, you actually just teach the Bible. I, I, I said, I don't know what to say, <laughs> I know your church don't. He goes, no, we don't do that. We talk about life and some stuff, and then, we, you know, something, and, and we go home. What he is saying here, he says, look, King, the tree that you saw, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, 
and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, they were gorgeous leaves, and the fruit thereof was much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. He's saying that this tree is so massive and is so gorgeous and is so fruitful that the entire world, it's, it's, the tree goes up all the way to heaven. It covers the entire earth. And it also says, look at it, and in it was meat for everybody. This tree, this nation has grown so profitable and so fruitful that the entire world is at ease and he can feel he has wiped out almost entirely hunger and poverty under this one nation, his tree. It has become absolutely gorgeous. The kingdom has been totally enriched. And when we look through scripture and we look through the book of Revelation and different prophecies, it tells us, it reminds us of the merchandise of Babylon, the global trade that took place in Babylon, the, the rare delicacies, the food that was imported for Babylon and for the king, the fine linens, the purples, the gold the silks, all the things that were imported and finely fine twined linens and all these things, the famous shipping, the ships of Tarsus that were renowned for their size, the shipping industries all controlled by Babylon the king. And, and this is, an, I mean, the economy was absolutely astounding. He has ended all of his wars now, so he's no longer fighting anyone. This is strictly enjoyment. This is, this is absolutely golden. He is reaching and dare I say, exceeding that of King Solomon. Now there's a point to that. Because when we look at it, we remember, actually this man has been enriched by the prince of darkness. Remember last week from Isaiah 12 and 13. Who's really behind these things? Lucifer himself. And so when you think to yourself, we're talking of kingdom, we're talking of the transfer of dominion, we know that the goal of the devil is to be the counterfeit of God. God's golden age is the millennium. Now put the pieces together. The picture of the millennium was the kingdom of Solomon. And the counterfeiter knows this. The days of Solomon were so profitable that they literally took chunks and shards and shavings of silver and threw them on the side of the road just for glitter for their eyes to enjoy. Just for jewelry. They literally adorned the side roads with silver. It was a picture of the millennium, the golden time. The wars of David had ended. Solomon's Glory came. He ruled the entire earth. Apes, peacocks were brought in. Certain numbers of gold by pound came by ship every day. It sounds awful familiar to what's happening here in Babylon. Because the devil is the counterfeiter. His goal is to do exactly what God said that he would do. But I will be the God. So what he has, then, is global dominion. The devil is saying to himself, Aha, I have my man. 
And you have to remember this because later on in Daniel, this is only picturesque of another man who is literally the Antichrist. So you have to remember stuff that we're learning and picking up along the way. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Verse 22, It is you, O king, that are grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reaches unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. Verse 23, we get to know that there's something spiritual going on because angels are dispatched. Verse 23, And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one come down from heaven saying something. Now, I ruled that around a bunch, looked it up in the original Greek or the Chaldean, the different languages. And no one really agrees, so we can just have fun with it, I suppose. He says, The king saw a watcher and an holy one come down. I don't know if he's explaining the watcher as an angel, as saying, and he's a holy one, or there's actually two watchers that came down. One is holy, therefore the other one may not be. we got to understand that if there's holy angels doing the bidding of God, there's also demons, fallen angels, doing the bidding of the devil. I don't know if that which one it is. It, it may only be talking of one watcher. It might be talking of two. It might no one really knows. And all the commentators just they don't they don't know either. They're of no help. But either way, we see that the the angels themselves are, are becoming involved. He says, "I saw this watcher and a holy one come down from heaven, saying, Hew down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, probably to, to hold it together, the, the stumps, from rotting. So he lines it with iron and then brass. In a tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over. He announces, you're going to be cut down, O king, and it's going to last for seven years. Now, I don't know if these holy ones are just telling the story or if they're actually going to participate in executing what's about to happen because the king is going to have to lose his mind. He's going to be with the beasts of the field. So verse 27, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and look what Daniel says to him. Now, I think he takes quite a bit of risk, so you know that they have a pretty good relationship by now, because Daniel is honest, and he says, O king, break off thy sins by righteousness and in your iniquities. Daniel's telling the king, just, just do right. Just stop what you're doing. Just stop and do right. And if you do, there's a really good chance, if you stop and repent, that this may be stopped from you and you may be saved from these things. He knows that God is gracious and merciful. And he tells him, if you just stop, you don't have to undo everything that you've done because there's nothing you can do about everything you've done in the past. But if you just stop now, the hand may be stopped. And it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. And then, of course, it plays out, lasts about 
12 months, so we have a year where he thinks he gets away with it, but he doesn't. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, and now you can see this, it just smells like sulfur from the devil. This king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? He is so prideful and so boastful that the sentence comes down. Verse 31, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee seven full years, until thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomsoever he he will. He goes absolutely crazy. And it got worse and worse and worse till finally it says in verse 33, the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He goes absolutely crazy. It's a rare form of insanity. It's been documented a few times through the years where people have totally lost their mind and they thought that they were animals and they actually watched them in an insane asylum when they put them out with the other people out in the yard. One in particular, when he was eating grass and his nails grew like this, that he actually discerned in the grass that he was eating. He was so anal about things that he would not eat weeds. He would only eat the grass and only grass would he eat. He was insane. Left him outside as a beast, in the rain and in the dew, his hair and his beard, everything grew and matted together to the point where he almost looked lion-like and his fingernails and toenails grew so much so that they looked like talons. Now you say to yourself, well what is God doing here? Is he just punishing the guy? Is this just the cruelty of God that he would take a man and put him absolutely crazy and insane and live as a beast for seven full years? Is this what he's doing? It says, and at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes like the prodigal son. After seven long years, he lifted up his eyes unto heaven. What is he doing? What is God doing? He's dragging him. Some people need to be drawn. And some people need to be downright dragged. And God knows exactly what to do to get you. And because he's so gracious that even if you don't want to come, he knows what's best for you, and he doesn't want any of them to perish. Because all that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And everyone that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And if the Father has your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and we are in revolt and in rebellion, 
He will just make your life so miserable till finally you come. Is that not amazing grace, how sweet the sound? A slave trader who sails the ocean simply to take human beings, tie them up, stick them in the hull of the ship, rope them to oars. Some of them actually drown on feces and urine mixed with salt water before they even get to Europe. Cost so bad that he could not say a sentence without it. And yet Mr. Newton is dragged to faith in Christ, repents of his sins, and writes the most famous song we have all known. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. So finally, when God knows exactly, after seven long years, he lifts up his eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought me, which is amazing. This never, ever happens. If you're under a king in these days, and your king just slightly shows weakness, there's a coup. They kill you on all your children and all of your seed and take over the kingdom. This man not only was saved, but his kingdom was preserved through the full seven years. No one took care of it. Probably because of who? Probably because of Daniel. The second in command. Gets his mind back and his lords and his counselors, they come back to him and they've been faithful. And he says, I was established in my kingdom and my excellent majesty was added unto me. He is fully restored. What a portrait of grace. A trophy of grace. I mean, this man had pride like the devil. He was used of the devil. So much so that he was actually pictured as the devil. And now, verse 37, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he's able to obey. Good thing. Because I'm pretty prideful. So are you. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.